I've been thinking about for a long time this idea of time. Because when you think about it, time is all we really have. Right? Life is time. What is life without time? Time is the stuff that we're made of. Time is the stuff that actually gives us a sense that there is anything here at all. Really all we're doing is trading time with each other. That's really what it comes down to. And we think of money and time, but really money is just time. If you want to think of it in a, in a real basic sense, money is just a time credit, right? You go and you give your time to someone providing some sort of service, and they give you a credit that represents the time that you gave them. It's just a time credit. And then you take that time credit and you give it to somebody else. And they give you a product or a good or, or a service that represents the time that they're going to give back. And so what we're doing is really just trading time back and forth. Time is everything. Time is what we're made of. And so the most important thing that we can consider then is where we put our presence in the time that we have. I suppose in the final analysis, that tells us everything that we need to know about ourselves. What we really believe, you know, what our priorities are. Where have we put time, presence, into the time, the moments that we have available to us? I found a few quotes. I love quotes. Anybody with me there? Love quotes. Quotes are cool. Um, you can look at them on your insert there. Just to, to, to back up that idea from Balthasar Gracian, Gracian, I suppose, all that really belongs to us is time. Even he who has nothing else has that. I love that. Henry David Thoreau, the price of anything is the amount of life you exchange for it. Same idea. Time credits. Just time back and forth. There's only one thing more precious than our time, and that's who we spend it on. I love that. We talk about often in here, if you're here, there's a whole bunch of things you said no to in order to be here. With your presence here, you are saying that this is the most important place that you could be. Right here, right now. Of all the other places you could be. I think because human beings are limited to one place and one time, we haven't figured out how to bilocate yet clone ourselves yet our presence says something very stark very singular very important about our choices about what we're saying about our presence and and why we're here albert einstein a fun one the only reason for time is so that everything doesn't happen at once i like that and then of course my favorite james taylor secret of life is enjoying the passage of time if you've never heard that song go listen to it it's a wonderful tune so everything comes down to time. We like to focus on things. We like to focus on space. We like to focus on outcomes, right? But really, it's all about time. It's about where we place our presence over time that is going to get us into the space or the outcomes or anything else that we fixate on. But we're fixating on the wrong thing. We're fixating on those outcomes rather than just where we place our time. So... As I'm considering all these philosophical things, but also looking at the practical things, what is it that I need to do or to change in order to be able to be personally 
put in the best possible position to be able to affect change and growth and the other things that we're talking about doing here at The Effect. And so I started reading articles about, you know, where do pastors put their time? Time management for pastors, if you will, and just trying to get some ideas and, and about this. And, of course, it got kind of scary fast. I mean, all of the, the articles or most of the articles that I was reading were really approaching it from the same viewpoint that any business um, you know, executive or, or business strategist would approach it in terms of time management, doing these, these things that you need to do to grow a church, to do this, to do that. But I came across one article that was really stark, really kind of blunt, right to the point. And I wanted to read a little bit of, you, of it to you so that we can start to talk about time and time placement and and what our values are, and how this all works. So I just want you to, to listen to this for a second, consider what he's saying, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit more on the back end. He calls this the close-to-the-pastor syndrome. One of the primary reasons churches under 1,000 fail to grow is their senior pastors have never called into question, then systematically dismantled the quote-unquote close-to-the-pastor syndrome in their churches. A wonky dynamic where long-time members feel that for the church to feel like church, they need open, unfettered access to their pastor at all times. The problem is, as churches grow, access must diminish as the point leader focuses on leading staff and raising up high-capacity leaders. Here's why this cannot be ignored. You will never have a relationship with more than 120 people at your church. That's his big premise there. You can memorize names, stand at the door and shake hands, and even call everyone in your church on their birthday like a friend of mine does. But none of those things will change the fact that you will never have a real relationship with more than 120 people at your church. The quicker you accept that fact, the sooner you'll be able to set into motion what is needed to reach lost people and help them become self-feeding and reproducing disciples of Jesus. At the end of Jesus' ministry, after speaking to thousands over three years, there were only 120 people left in a house in Jerusalem trying to figure out what to do next, Acts 1.15. It's obvious these were the people who actually knew him, his actual friends, people he actually spent time with, those in which he actually invested his personal time and energy. Could there have been more? Of course. But after a senior pastor's schedule has been maximized, priorities aligned, and energy bolstered, the average senior pastor can juggle no more than 120 actual relationships. I'm here to tell you that if you're willing, you can address the close-to-the-pastor syndrome in a truthful but gracious way. Here's how. Make a list of your 120, but recognize that your list will constantly change. These will be your staff, elders, key advisors, and high-capacity leaders you are mentoring. Keep in mind that who comprises this group constantly changes. Who you spend time with at 200 is different than who you're going to spend time with at 400 and 600. Who you spend time with at 2,000 is different than who you spend time with at 1,000 and so on. Recognize that the larger you get, the more focused you must become on being intentional with your 120. But that group will morph over time. In fact, as your church grows, you will not only spend less time with certain church members, you will spend less time with certain staff members. I have a friend who is a senior pastor of a large church in Los Angeles. His executive pastor tells every new hire, please understand it may be a very long time before you even meet the senior pastor. As bizarre, sinful, weird, unhealthy as that might seem to some people, it's just a reality. 
The larger you become, the less access people will have to you. I tell senior pastors that I coach that while they will only be hands-on pastors to 120 people, they will also forever be a pastoral presence to all of their people. Each senior pastor must determine how best to accomplish this for themselves. For me, that means trying to hug as many people as I can on Sunday morning and standing at the front of the room after each service and praying for people for as long as they need to talk. I stay until the last person is gone. Do I do pastoral care? Of course, just like every other staff member. I visit hospitals, do funerals, perform weddings, just like everyone else. The difference is I only do these things for people in that group of 120. And again, that group is constantly changing. Our goal is not to isolate ourselves, but to get our people the help they need. Here are some practical ways to make this happen. Here's where it gets interesting. Change your cell phone number and don't give it out to anyone who's not on that list. Keep your current email address, but route that to either a paid assistant or to a volunteer who will handle your communication. Consider this your public email address. Create a private email address that you only share with your staff, leadership, and the leaders in which you are investing, your 120. Stop setting up meetings with people who are not in that group, except for Thursday afternoons, parentheses, see my article, How Senior Pastors Can Schedule Their Week for Maximum Impact which I did. I took a look at that article as well, and it was gnarly. I mean, it was just so regimented. And he only had Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday afternoons for meetings of any kind, you know, with other staff members or whatever. And Thursday was reserved with some possible slots for people outside of the 120. But that was it. That was a total access to the outside for Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday afternoons. You know, Monday was a day that you completed your sermon. Your sermon should be done by noon on Monday. My sermon's not done until 2.30 Sunday morning. I mean, come on. No? And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday mornings were supposed to be just prayer time and research and reading and all of that. Friday and Saturday were supposed to be your days off. I mean, it was just so regimented. It was, it was amazing. But everything was down just completely in its place and a place for everything. And uh, he also says to push requests to meet with you to other staff members and leaders and don't let people guilt you to death for making these changes. Have the define the relationship talk when you receive pushback. What happens when someone you fought alongside, who fought alongside you in the war years, quote unquote, is now someone that you're thankful for, but is not someone you feel God is leading you to invest in going forward? What happens when, say, a man named Jim approaches you after service one day and tells you, the weirdest thing happened this week. I tried calling you and it said you have a new unlisted phone number. What's your new number? I want to text you the information for a golf outing. What do you say? The old you, the one focused on keeping everyone happy, would have given that number to him on the spot. But not the new you, the one who realizes that future kingdom expansion necessitates that you're honest with him. The new you says, Jim... To be the senior pastor this church needs moving forward, I have decided to get a new number and give it only to our staff, elders, a few leaders, and my family. If you need to reach me, just send me an email. My assistant is now managing that email for me and will get me the message. Awkward silence. Temptation to buckle. You want to blurt out, just kidding, 
But for the sake of reaching lost people, for the sake of healthy boundaries, the new you resists the temptation to give in. You smile, tell him you love him, give him a hug, and then leave him to deal with the fact that your relationship has changed. Wow. Now, I don't play golf, so I'm kind of safe there. You know? But if I did play golf, you know, I was thinking through this. There is some truth in what he's saying. Obviously, there is a maximum limit that any one of us can, can juggle relationships, and, and I understand that. But is there another way to set boundaries that aren't quite so draconian, so radical? I mean, without changing my phone number, could I just start cutting out certain activities like golf? And so explain to Jim, I can't do that anymore because time has changed and I, I can't. But in other words, I'm cutting out the golf, but not the golfer. Would that be a possible? And if I do just that much, does that mean I'm cutting out on possible growth? Will we only grow half as much? You know, I can see the truth in what he's saying. And I mean, I don't know what your reaction to this was. I know what the reaction, my reaction to it was. And it's easy to poke fun at or it's easy to really start to, to criticize. But like I said, there is truth in it. But in what context is it true? I think is the important question that we have to ask. Last week or the week before, we talked about Paul's epistles. The answers to questions that he gives in his letters are only true within the context of the question, within the context of the circumstance that gave rise to the letter in the first place. If anything he's saying in here is true, in what context is it true? Only within the context of a large megachurch? in the context of modern Western society and, and culture, you know, Western Christianity. And if there's another context that we can move into, does that change the truth? Does that change the way that we allocate our time? Does that change the way that we look at relationships? This is, this is what we have to ask ourselves right now. Um, I don't know the answer to this. I don't know how to balance this yet. I'm, I'm kind of working it out out loud with all of you. But, but this is something that I think is important for us to consider. And in doing this, I came up with some things that I want to, to share with you so that we can all start to think about time. How do we allocate time? What do we do with time? We have goals and things we want to accomplish. You know, what does it take to get there? Should we be getting there? based on what is necessary, and so on and so forth. These are the things that I really wanted to share with you this morning. Um, the articles that I've read always base their principles on Scripture. That's good. On Jesus. That's good. And so often we assume that we understand the context of the ancient world. Okay? So that we think that we understand Jesus, but what we're doing is we're looking at him through a Western worldview, a modern worldview, we're overlaying our values, our system on top of Jesus and then extrapolating principles that we say we need to use to get where we want to go. What we need to do is to really drill down like we always do here. You know, For us, time is hyper-defined. We've got time down to the last millisecond. I mean, we've got our years, our months, our, our, our weeks, our days, our hours, our minutes, our seconds, and not even seconds. You know, with the audio equipment back here, we're dealing with milliseconds, a thousandth of a second. And so all of these issues. Did you know that 
a second right now, or there's a time standard that's not even related to the movement of the Earth and the other, Earth, uh, the other bodies in the solar system. Since 1960, we're on a completely different standard right now. It's called the cesium second. And I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but an atomic clock has now set the standard for our time. And these scientists figured out that they could take a cesium atom and look at its cycle of radiation and that something on the order of 9.2 billion cycles of radiation equals one second. And that standard, you know, is, is rock solid because even the, the stars and the moon and the earth and the sun, they kind of vary a little bit. We have taken time completely outside of nature. We have taken time and made it this, this immutable, monolithic thing. And we've got it all laid out. And we think we understand what's going on with time. But the ancient world was nothing like this. It is, it's almost impossible for us to comprehend time and time management in the ancient world based on how they used time, viewed time, and the technology that they had available to them. And I don't have time to go into everything, but I wanted to go through just a few things. You know, the ancient people, they restarted their calendar with every new king. Now imagine that. Every new king was year one. That king reigned for two years. <laughs> and then you started at year one again. And it, that's just, that's mind-boggling in and of itself. The Romans named their years for the two consuls that were in office that year. It was just two names for every year that went through. And Roman Christians adopted that in the early Christian era as well. <coughs> See if I can do this. But there weren't any numbers to the years. It, it's it's, it's mind-boggling. There was no continuity. There was no flow-through. It was just what was going on at the time with each new king, with each new council, without any numbers. It wasn't until the 6th century that Pope John I commissioned a monk to, to do the Easter tables, and he said, you know, I don't want to base it on the year of Diocletian, which was an emperor, a Roman emperor that was a, a major persecutor of Christianity. So he calculated what he thought was Jesus' birthday, and that became the invention of BCAD, before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And he got it wrong by at least four years. So zero, where Jesus is supposed to have been born, really he had to have been born at least 4 BC because that's when Herod died and Herod had to be alive, blah, blah, blah. But it was the 6th century where that system was even invented. And it wasn't until two to 300 years later before that system was starting to be adopted in Europe. It wasn't until the 16th century, until the Gregorian calendar was put in place, which is the calendar that we're still using today. So many of the things that we take for granted are really rather recent inventions or recent additions. The ancient world had such a vastly different system. When you get down to each day itself, by the time Jesus gets on the scene, the Jews had adopted the Roman system pretty much. The Romans had been occupying um, Judea for about 60 years by the time Jesus is born. And so they had adopted, they had borrowed from the Babylonians while they were in exile and they borrowed from the Romans. And so the system was, 
And for the Jews, their day starts at sunset. It goes from sunset to sunset. That seems a little odd to us to start your day in the nighttime, but at least it was an observable astronomical event. To start the day at midnight, the way the Romans did and the way we do, there's no real astronomical event. And so it made sense to start at sunset, and then the day would go through until the next morning. The Jews said also it was kind of a metaphor for life, which is kind of interesting. You know, that we start life in the darkness of the womb and then we burst into light and eventually we go back into the darkness of the grave, only anticipation of new life in Olam Haba, in the world to come. And so their days matched the, that metaphor for life, starting in darkness, moving into light, and then back to darkness again. And during the nighttime, there were four watches. Each watch was three hours long. So from sunset to about 9 p.m. was the first watch. The second watch was 9 p.m. to midnight. The third watch was midnight to 3 a.m., which was also called cock crow. Gives you a new way to interpret when Jesus says, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. He was talking probably about the third watch of the night. you know. And he also talks at other places about the cock crow. That was that third watch. And then the fourth watch was from 3 a.m. until sunrise. Then during the daytime, they broke the daylight hours into 12 hours. All right? So starting at sunrise to 8 a.m. was the first hour. And then from 8 to 9 was the second hour, and 9 to 10 was the third, and so on and so forth, all the way up to the 12th hour that went from 6 p.m. until sunset. Now, just stop right there for a second and think about this. The way we order our day, the way we plan our days, we're at least going down to 15-minute resolution, aren't we? We're making meetings and setting lunch dates for 12.15 and 1.30, sometimes 1.35. I mean, we, our resolution is so fine. It's going down into the minutes. Not necessarily the seconds yet, but at least the minutes. We're talking about a society that at night, the smallest resolution you had was three hours and during the day, the smallest resolution was one hour. Did you know that minutes and seconds weren't even introduced into the Western world until the 14th century when clocks had progressed to the point where they could actually pick that up? And they took the hour, and the, the Latin is pars minutae prima, the, the first smaller part. And minuta became minutes, and then they, and so they took the hour and divided it into 60 equal smaller parts. And then they took the minute and divided that into 60 equal smaller parts, which was called pars minuta secundus, second. And that where we get, that's where we get second from. So, but that wasn't until the 14th century that that was being introduced. <clears throat> until that time, until just 600 years ago, the smallest resolution of time that you had to work with was an hour during the day. Now, if you measure the days from sunset to sunset, what happens as you go through the seasons, right? The days are getting longer and the nights are getting shorter until Christmas, the, summer, the winter solstice, and then it starts going the other way. So if your days are tied to the sunsets, that means the daytime hours are getting longer, the nighttime hours are getting shorter, and then vice versa. In Rome, at that latitude... On the summer solstice, an hour is about 75 minutes long, measured that way. And a nighttime hour is about 45 minutes long. You know? uh, and then on the winter solstice, it's, it, it switches over. 
if you're trying to make a date with someone, plan a meeting, you have to realize that any time that you set, let's meet at the third hour, plus or minus 75 minutes. <laughs> if you're going to meet them at night, let's meet them in the second watch, plus or minus three hours. Do you see what I'm saying? You don't, the, the type of system that we have is not even possible under those kind of parameters. You wouldn't make meetings like that, you know? You're going to have someone over for dinner. Well, they just sort of show up when they show up, and you got the food ready, and then you eat. But you can't really plan things. It is so incredibly different in terms of time. Imagine a society based on that kind of scenario. How time is this sort of fluid, amorphous, lazy kind of thing. And not only that, in, the ancient, in ancient Judea, you only ate two meals. And so you got up with the sunrise, you worked until midday, you had your first meal, which was just like a snack. They called it the morning morsel, you know. Maybe it was just olives and some bread and, you know, something else small. And then you took a nap and you broke for about three hours, sometimes four hours right in the middle of the day, in the hot part of the day where you really couldn't do any manual labor anyway. And then you started in again for a couple hours until sunset. How are you going to get anything done with a schedule like that? I mean, think about our work ethic here. I mean, you don't take a siesta in the middle of the day. Come on. You know, it is just so vastly different. And we never really take that into account. How that changes things. How that changes the way that we do the things that, 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 that Jesus would have done, the things that he did in relating to the people in going through his public ministry. So, in this time context, we have to see Jesus living and relating and teaching. And in terms of time management, well, yes, he did have priorities. You know that he had the three closest friends, right? Peter, James, and John. And then he had the 12 disciples. And then he had the 70 disciples beyond that. He talked about being called just to the lost sheep of Israel. Remember when there was a woman, she's sometimes called a Syrophoenician woman. And at any rate, she was a Gentile. She was a Canaanite. And she comes to Jesus and, and pleads for him to heal her daughter. And Jesus isn't answering. She's yelling and screaming as they're walking through and he's not paying any attention. Finally, the disciples say, will you say something to her and shut her up? Because she's driving us crazy. You know? And his response to her is, I have come to tend the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, you're not in my priority list. You know? But of course, he's, he's swayed by her faith and, and he helps her anyway. He did have priorities. But it looks like he was willing to let go of those priorities. He was willing to be interrupted. Take a look at the, the next passage here. Mark 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, this is the Sea of Galilee, a large crowd gathered around him, so he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. 
For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, Hey, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Jesus was on a mission. It was an important mission. A synagogue official, someone who really could have done some good for him, right? A synagogue official, want to grow your church? That's a good guy to know. He comes to him and, he, and his daughter is dying. She's dying. So he's heading off, and then he takes time to stop here. Now, the next line of the, the, of the story is that the servants of Jairus come and say, never mind, she's already died. Don't bother the teacher anymore. So the implication there is that Jesus spent a lot more time in delaying continuing his journey than is just written here. The text in the New Testament in any biblical passage is so compressed He probably was visiting with her. He was talking to her. He was establishing some kind of relationship with her. And then the word comes. He was willing to be interrupted. Even with an important mission, with an important person, he still is willing to stop. And of course, he still goes and, and heals his daughter anyway. So if you're Jesus, you get to have your cake and eat it too, I guess. But the point is, he's willing to take that time. Same thing when he's told your best friend, Lazarus, is dying. What did the text say? He stayed in that place three more days. He was busy. He had things to do. Well, he knew what was happening over here. And then when he finally gets to Bethany, you know, my Lord, if he had been here, my brother would not have died. And he tearfully enters into mourning with her, even though he knows that he's going to heal, bring her brother back to life. But there's something about Jesus that enters the moment fully, whatever that moment is. He knows where he's going. He's got priorities. He's got an agenda. He's got a mission. But he's so fully invested in this moment right now that things come in, walk in, take precedence, call his attention to the content of this moment right here and right now. When people would bring children to him and the disciples would want to shoo them away. No, no, never do that. Let the children come to me, for such as these are kingdom. He saw no one as insignificant. No one as not worth his time. And yet, he did have priorities. You know, he did have an agenda. Always willing to take time. Always willing to do that. See, it is... So hard for us to imagine how this works in this culture. Jesus willing to spend time with individuals. Nicodemus, one of the Sanhedrin, one of the leading Pharisees, there's a guy that could help you. He spends time with him. But then as he's cutting through Samaria at a well, he spends just as much time, maybe more, with a Samaritan woman who could do nothing for him except get him in trouble. You weren't supposed to talk to females in public anyway. You weren't supposed to have anything to do with Samaritans. She's like a double loser. And there he is spending time with her. You know, 
it's, it's all so interesting. And in the context of this time, that's just kind of flowing, you know? All they had were sundials and water clocks. And in the Galilee, you didn't have anything but the relative position of the sun to tell you where your day was, to tell you what time it was. Was Jesus really aware of the passage of time when he was in a deep conversation with that woman at the well? Nicodemus at night. The woman who had the hemorrhage. We can't know these things, but we can imagine them, can't we? When we start to look at the character of the man and what's going on, It was just last week, I had an early morning meeting with someone dealing with the uh, treatment center, and this guy is all business, you know? It was just like, we're trying to get this done, this done, this done, this done. And he was telling me how his week had just blown up because he got like a dozen calls on Monday, and it just booked his entire week, and he had his all week book. You know, his phone was constantly ringing and texting, and he had to look at that every time. And, and then we ended our meeting because he said, oh, man, I... I got an emergency. I got to go. And he's out the door. And that was the that was that quality of that particular meeting. And then I had a, an appointment with uh, another guy that I hadn't seen in in a couple of years, three or four years. And uh, it was at, at a restaurant, and I get to meet him. And he he stands up and he gives me this big guy. He says, "Oh, buddy, don't do that to me again." And I said, "What?" He says, "Wait till long before we get to see each other." You know. And we're sitting there talking, and I'm not looking at my my watch. I don't have a watch. I'm not looking at my clock. I don't know the passage of time, but I sort of have an internal clock after a while. You kind of know when the hour or the hour and a half mark has crossed. And so I'm figuring it's been about an hour and we're still talking. And he says, how are you doing on time? You know, and I, I could just tell he needed to talk. I said, I'm fine. You know, and I knew that I was okay. I didn't have anything pressing. I had stacks this high on my desk, you know, and stuff that I really needed to get to. And I was hoping that this day was going to be productive and I was going to be able to move the agenda forward, you know. But there he was. And then I get, I, I, I leave that meeting and I come and I park right here and I'm just ready to get in. Okay, now I can get to work. And here comes another guy who has just let, got let loose from the AA meeting that has moved to um, North Carolina and I hadn't seen him in the better part of a year. And he's like, well, I got to talk to him, you know. You know, and then my next session was a guy who really needed to talk and it went an hour and a half and it's only supposed to go 50 minutes, right? Your sessions are 50 minutes, 50 minute hours. How do you manage that? How do you balance that? What are the choices that you make? I got hardly anything done in terms of the work that I need getting done. Sometimes I come home and I complain to Marion. I got hardly anything done today. She says, this is your job. What are you talking about? That's your work. <laughs> Dope. You know? Being pulled off of our agenda by people right in front of us. How do we balance that? How do we make sure you know, that we're still getting forward, doing things we need to do, but still being present to what's right in front of us. See, that's the question that I'm, I'm always asking myself. And I suppose somewhere between changing my cell phone number and doing what I normally do might be a good mix, but I don't know exactly where that is. How about you? Does this come up in your life? Is this the kind of thing that you need to deal with between the work that you know you need to do, between the priorities and the agenda that you need to set, and the walk-ins, the things that just happen right in front of you. How do we manage? How do we balance? If we have to err to one side or another, where do we err to? What do we do this? How do we do this? 
I can tell you that I think Jesus is pointing to one last thing that I think may help us a little bit. Jesus used the Sabbath over and over again to illustrate, illustrate one of the main points of his teaching. It's hard for us to understand once again what the Sabbath really meant to the Jewish people. There's a famous saying that it's not so much that the Jews have kept the Sabbath, but that the Sabbath has kept the Jews. The Sabbath is their fulcrum. It's the, it's the central focus of their daily lives. It is the focus of each and every week. It is part of the creation week. God says, make this day holy. And they do that, and they have done that for four to 6,000 years. The Sabbath has literally kept the Jewish people an identifiable people after all of that time from ancient times. The days of their week reflect the importance of Sabbath. Did you know that in Hebrew, there are no names for the days of the week other than Shabbat for, for Saturday? All they do is number them. It's like every day of the week is just seen as preparation for and leading to Shabbat. And so Sunday is one, and Monday is two, and Tuesday is three, Wednesday is four, Thursday is five, and Friday doesn't even get a number. It's just Erev Shabbat, which means Sabbath Eve, basically, the day before Sabbath. Everything lines up. The days of their week are telling us how important, how central this day really is. Jesus uses this Sabbath to make his point because what the Pharisees had done is they had taken the legal point of the Sabbath and turned it over on itself. They had gotten to the point that the Sabbath was now only serving their own view of the law. The Sabbath was only serving their agenda in terms of creating this vast and elaborate system of oral tradition that the people had to follow. And it no longer was serving its own purpose. It was serving space. It was serving things. It was serving agenda rather than serving time anymore. And Jesus, of course, rails against this. Over and over and over again, he breaks the oral traditions on Shabbat just to prove his point. And he tells them, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What Sabbath is supposed to do in terms of creating this holy time for the people is being subverted by everything that you're doing in terms of your view of law and your terms of the legalism. No balance anymore. The Pharisees had no consideration for the content of the moment, the walk-ins, what happens in a moment. Jesus was always, always considering that, always sensitive to what was going on. And if someone needed his help on Sabbath or on one, two, three, four, or any other day of the week, he was there to give it. And he understood that this did not break the law. This fulfilled the intent of the law. So important to understand this. It's not just serving a legal outcome. There's something happening intrinsically. I wanted to read you just a little bit from uh, Rabbi Abraham Heschel. And I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's a famous Jewish rabbi um, in the 20th century and back in the 50s, 
he wrote a book called Shabbat as Sanctuary in Time. And in this book, he calls it a palace in time. Let me just just listen to this. The language is beautiful. And, and, and just see if this kind of rolls over you in a certain way. He says, Judaism is a religion of time, aiming at the sanctification of time. Unlike the space-minded man to whom time is unvaried, to whom all hours are alike, quality-less, empty shells, the Bible senses the diversified character of time. There are no two hours alike. Every hour is unique and the only one given at the moment, exclusive and endlessly precious. Judaism teaches us to be attached to holiness in time, to be attached to sacred events, to learn how to consecrate sanctuaries that emerge from the magnificent stream of a year. The Sabbaths are our great cathedrals, the Jewish equivalent of sacred architecture, not holy places, holy time. Divine presence placed not in space, but in time when God meets his people. Holy Sabbath is a palace in time. Jewish ritual may be characterized as the art of significant forms in time, as architecture of time. Most of its observances, the Sabbath, the new moon, the festivals, the sabbatical and jubilee year, depend on a certain hour of the day or season of the year. It is, for example, the evening, morning, or afternoon that brings with it the call to prayer. The main themes of faith lie in the realm of time. We remember the day of the exodus from Egypt, the day when Israel stood at Sinai, and our messianic hope is the expectation of a day, of the end of days. In the Bible, words are employed with exquisite care, particularly those which, like pillars of fire, lead the way in the far-flung system of the biblical world of meaning. One of the most distinguished words in the Bible is the word kadosh, Holy, a word which more than any other is representative of the mystery and majesty of the divine. Now, what was the first holy object in the history of the world? Was it a mountain? Was it an altar? It is indeed a unique occasion at which the distinguished word kadosh is used for the first time in the book of Genesis at the end of the story of creation. How extremely significant is the fact that it is applied to time. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. There is no reference in the record of creation to any object in space that would be endowed with the quality of holiness. This is a radical departure from a custom religious thinking. The mythical mind would expect that after heaven and earth have been established, God would create a holy place, a holy mountain or a holy spring upon which a sanctuary is to be established. Yet it seems as if to the Bible It is holiness in time, the Sabbath, which comes first. When history began, there was only one holiness in the world, holiness in time. The sanctity of time came first, the sanctity of man came second, and the sanctity of space last. Time was hallowed by God. Space, the tabernacle, was consecrated by Moses. The meaning of the Sabbath is to celebrate time rather than space. Six days a week we live under the tyranny of things of space. On the Sabbath, 
we try to become attuned to holiness in time. It is the day on which we are called upon to share in what is eternal in time, to turn from the results of creation, the results of creation, to the mystery of creation, from the world of creation to the creation of the world. Six days a week we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. On the Sabbath, we particularly care for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. The seventh day is a palace in time which we build. What was created on the seventh day? Tranquility, serenity, peace, and repose. Beyond the Sabbath, or using Shabbat as an overriding symbol, Jesus is pointing us to holiness of time. Not space, but the holiness of time. No two hours are alike. I love that. I think it's absolutely true. We make them alike because they're just blips on a day planner. They're just slots on our iPhone. Empty shells into which we put content. But the hour itself, the time, is sacred. And if we're present to it, it changes endlessly with each passing moment. And each moment is unique and each moment is precious. And though we still need to fill them <laughs> with our schedules, with our meetings, and all the things that we're going to do in 15-minute increments, you know, we still need to pay attention to what walks in. We still need to pay attention to the content of each of those moments. And whether they impact our agendas or not, tending to those is critically important. If you think about it this way, to paraphrase Jesus, our agendas were made for time. Time was not made for our agendas. I think if we can keep that straight, maybe that's a way of going forward, to be able to do both. To be able to manage our time in such a way that we do have priorities and we do get things done and we can move the ball forward each day. But that we're never insensitive to whoever's right in our path at the time. I hope that I never lose that sensitivity. Let's pray. Father, once again, we're, we're talking about difficult things and you know how difficult they are for us. And once again, thank you for the lessons in your word. Thank you for everything that Jesus did that shows us that this can be done in human form. Help us to learn to love more deeply every moment and find the balance that we need to love groups of people and love individuals at the same time. Thank you for everything you do for us, Lord, and the love that you shower on us. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.